Father, thank you so much for your great love for us, and I pray, Father, we would be able to learn uh, from the events, this historical record that you've preserved in your word for us. God, we do thank you for our military so much. Thank you, God, for men and women who have given of themselves freely uh, to live and to die, Father, that we could have even a copy of the scriptures in our hands uh, and to secure those freedoms to keep us free, Father. Uh, thank you, God, for your hand of mercy upon them. I pray, God, they would be blessed today. It's in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're in Deuteronomy chapter 1 still. Now, some of you ask me, oh, am I going to have a, 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 a half sheet for notes? You'll have one next week, but there's not going to be much for notes on it. It's just to keep you writing, uh, to get it going. And the reason is because I want you to be able to record what you're getting out of this. I don't want to dictate it uh, for you of how you should view it or how you should look at it. I think it's important because... By wrestling with the text on your own, you end up being able to ask a lot more questions. Uh, Where we left off with last time was we have Moses uh, re-communicating with the second generation from the Exodus about the failures of the first generation. Uh, There's a lot to be said about the wisdom gleaned from learning from the mistakes of those before you. And it's very important to be communicating those things. If, if we all lived lives like uh, Egypt, uh, you would find that we would all be trying to erase our mistakes from history or our failures from history. They actually went to great lengths to try to make sure that none of that stuff uh, got recorded in such a way because Egypt never wanted to look bad. Uh, one of the worst things we can do as people is pretend we don't have mistakes. And so what Moses is doing here is he is painting a picture of the previous generation's mistakes so that they don't make the same mistake. We're going to show how that is relevant to us today. And so a couple of things I want to look at real quick. I know we've already gone over it, but I want us to hit on it. Chapter 1, verse 26. Uh, Moses tells them about it being a good land, and he says, verse 26, Yet you were not willing to go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. That's so important to get. Rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God, you were not willing. The attitude and their attitude dictated their action of not believing God. Let's see here. Uh, Verse 27, you grumbled in your tents. You said, because the Lord hates us, he brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us in the hand of the Amorites and destroy us. Uh, Notice verse 28, uh, where can we go up? Our brethren have made our hearts melt. Uh, And it talks to them about the giants in the land, the Anakim, you know, the fortified cities. In fact, you see how they really get embellishing there in the middle of 28. It says, the people are bigger and taller than we. Their cities are large and fortified to heaven. Anybody ever seen a city fortified to heaven? No, but boy, they could really national inquire some things in order to get their way, can't they? They created a panic among the people in order to get what they wanted passed, passed. And that's what happened. So where I want to pick up at, Is verse 32. But for all this, all that stuff that God did to prove to you he's faithful, and all the rebelling and the attitude that you had in spite of that, but for all this, you did not trust the Lord your God, who goes before you on your way to seek out a place for you to encamp in fire by night and cloud by day to show you the way in which you should go. Stop for a second. I said this a long time ago when we first started. One of the greatest atrocities that we can ever commit as Christians is to think about God wrongly or or falsely. 
to attribute false things to God. We often think of him maybe as our creator. In fact, if I throw out the name God, what are some of the things that you automatically think of? What would you say? Creator, what? The Almighty. Okay. What else? Father. Call him his father. Now, let's talk about this real quick, okay? I'm not trying to belabor the point, but I do want to touch on this for a second to try to get the mentality that Moses is trying to communicate. If you haven't had a good relationship with your father, don't you find that you sometimes project those things upon who God is? Does everybody see why the correction of the scriptures is so important? See that? Okay, that's, that's really important to understand. Some of us grew up in, in families. Uh, my father was a really good father, but, but he, he, he's just a quirky guy. He's a quirky cat. He just is. Uh, love him to death, though. Uh, but some of those things can really skew how we think of God. We think of him as constantly waiting to beat us, you know, just waiting for us to mess up so he can snap our necks or bend us over his knee or something like that. A lot of people have very threatening views of God, yet they know that if they don't believe God or follow God or those types of things, do what he says, they'll end up in eternity in hell, and that's way worse than being, you know, beaten, I guess, is the idea they have. Such crazy things we heap upon God and corrupt his character for that. So it's important to think through how do we think about God and why that matters. Notice here, it says your God carried you just as a man carries his son, verse 31, 32, you did not trust him. Verse 33, he goes before you and he seeks out a place for you. And notice that he leads you. Sometimes it might be good if we started thinking of God as provider. Everything you have comes from him. The whole reason why we eat three meals a day is because of him. Why do you pray for you eat? Maybe we don't pray for we eat. But why do we? Don't we, don't we have the cliche, right? God is... Great, God is. Thank you, Father, for this food, right? Or if you try to get away with it, like I did at 12 years old, good Lord, good meat, let's eat, right? I got, I got lit up for that at the dinner table. I mean, my dad straight took a belt to me right then and there. Uh, but good Lord, good meat, let's eat, that kind of thing. God is our provider. Everything that we have, all the ability that we're able to do, and the way that he makes the gaps whole again, it all comes from him. This is something that they needed to be reminded of. Why? Because they were in a panicking frenzy. And even though the evidence was stacked to heaven, if you want to talk something that was fortified to heaven, it was the evidence for trusting God and what should be happening. Regardless of what they saw, that's the idea. So, verse 34, Then the Lord heard the sound of your words, and he was angry, and he took an oath. He swore. God is swearing. And here's not swear words. He is swearing something. This is definitely going to happen. Verse 35, not one of these men, this evil generation, notice that's his assessment, shall see the good, what? Land. That's just the subject that we just got done talking about, isn't it? Notice how pivotal the land is in all of this situation. The good land which I swore to give to your fathers. Verse 36, I love it. Please make marker 36. Except Caleb the son of Jephunneh, he shall see it, and to him and to his sons, notice it poured over generational, I will give the land on which he has set foot. Why? Because he has followed the Lord fully. This whole theology of inheritance in the Bible is very clear. 
When you follow the Lord fully, you receive a glorious inheritance. It is all throughout the Old Testament, and it's not any different when you get into the New Testament. Notice that Yahweh's not talking about, well, this person will be blessed. Caleb's blessed because he was the one that was saved. All the rest of you are just sinners destined for the lake of fire. Notice he doesn't say that. Does Israel have a belief in God? Absolutely they do. It's kind of hard not to when he's appearing to you in certain ways and doing crazy things like destroying your enemies in a flood of, of, of water, right? So you've got this initial conviction of his existence. But notice what God's calling into as far as the obedience that would lead to an inheriting of the land is the idea is that even when your circumstances are against you, God still remains God in your decision-making. That's the idea. Because Caleb was different. And how was he different? He followed me fully. Fully. Very important to think about. Our obedience, is it full to God? Verse 37, the Lord was angry with me also on your account, saying, not even you shall enter there. Pause for just a second. Was Moses a great leader? Did Moses love the Lord? Did Moses spend so much time with God that it actually baked his face into a golden brown? It did. He actually had to cover up so he didn't scare everybody else because his face radiated God's glory. All these people in this Middle East, Moses is the guy wearing the veil. Interesting. All because he had spent so much time with God, served out his purposes, served as God's man to discipline the children of Israel. When he came down, they're all worshiping the golden calf, right? He crushes up the law and actually has them drink it or, or mashes up the... Uh, uh, golden calf and actually has them drink some of that people died that day i mean moses was zealous for the lord moses didn't inherit the land let's do this put your finger here turn with me to numbers 20 gosh deuteronomy was too much now we're going to numbers all right Numbers chapter 20. You might have a heading right above verse 8. What does it say? The waters of what? Meribah. Meribah is a Hebrew word that means griping. It means complaining. It means, right? That's what it means. It is the cries of a disgruntled teenager. Notice this, verse 8. Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, assemble the congregation and pay close attention. Speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation in their beasts drink. Moses, we're thirsty out here. It's the desert. Ugh. How come God wants us to die? Man, Moses was a man of patience, wasn't he? Good grief. But notice, go to the rock and speak to it. 
and the rock will bring forth water. And there'll be so much water that everybody gets some and everybody will be satisfied. Now, this incident had happened before, hadn't it? What happened the first time whenever they came to the rock and the rock brought forth water? What did Moses do? He struck it. He struck the rock, boom, out came a gush of water. But notice that's not what God says this time. Verse 9, so Moses took the rod from before the Lord just as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock and he said to them, now pause, pause. Remember just before we talked about text message and you're not for sure what the tone is going on here? You can, you can smell the tone coming off the pages here, okay? Look what he says when he's gathered everybody together. Listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Is it Hallmark Day at Moses' house? It's not, is it? Man, he, can you see where his bitterness has gotten the best of him in ministering to people? Can you see where it's dictated his attitude and how he responds to what God has given him? Bunch of worthless ingrates, no good pieces of garbage, right? And look what happens here. Verse 11, then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. Is that what God said to do? No, unbelief. His anger caused him not to pay attention to exactly what God said to do. It says here, twice with the rod, the water came forth abundantly. There's the grace of God despite his disobedience. And the congregation and their beasts drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you have not what? Believed in me. What's your translation say, Jim? Susan? Trust in me? Trust in me? Unbelief. Everybody see how it screams off the pages. Moses, because you operated in unbelief, your anger and emotions dictate a lot about how you fulfill what God has called you to do. Think about that. They really direct a lot of it. Here's the amazing thing about God's commands. They are all objective. It's when they get in the hands of subjective people that we start to move them and twist them and contort them in order to be displayed in the way that we see is fit. Does anybody know why this was such a big deal? How many people have heard of types and antitypes in the scriptures? Okay, here's what a type is. A type is a figure, person, event, display, something that is physically going on in history that takes place. That is the type. It is an event everybody can look at in the historical record. But what it does is it physically paints a picture of supernatural or spiritual truth that is later revealed to us in the New Testament. The first time that the children of Israel came to the rock and Moses was commanded to strike the rock and it brought forth an abundance, that's because it was a picture of the first coming of Christ. Jesus shows up, he is struck down, and yet out of that striking comes forth an abundance in order to take care of everyone. Everyone drinks freely and is satisfied. All who are willing come, drink of the water of life freely that Jesus offers, right? Revelation 22. But the second time they came along the rock, God wanted to paint a picture and Moses messed it up. Why did he say speak to the rock? Anybody know? It represents the second coming. What do you say? 
It's much more difficult to do that. I mean, it's one thing because you got a hand in it, striking the rock, it comes forward. That's one thing. It's much more different to say rock, um, water. I mean, what do you say? It didn't even tell him what to say. It just said, speak to the rock. It didn't give him the dialogue in order to recite. But why did he say that? Here's the reason why. Because when Jesus returns the second time, he won't be struck down. In fact, people will call on the name of the Lord. Right? Isn't that what it is? And God wanted to paint this picture for the people because why? He sees the beginning, end, middle, all the thing. He sees the entire span of time and he is setting this up. Notice that Moses messes up the type for the second coming. Very interesting to see. It's important. Does anybody have questions about that? There are types and antitypes all throughout Scripture. It's important. We're good? Everybody gets it? You have a question? No? You sure? Okay, you got a smile. Usually a smile means I'm holding a question. Just making sure. All right. So, notice it says, let's finish up verse 12. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you have not believed me, to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I've given them. Moses does not receive the inheritance. In God's mercy, when we look at the end of Deuteronomy, we don't have to turn there, you can turn back to Deuteronomy 1, but when we, when we see the end of Deuteronomy, whenever Moses dies, and he's allowed to go up on a mountain, he's allowed to look over into the promised land because Joshua is now going to take up the mantle and lead them across into it to conquer it and to possess it as their own. We know also whenever, uh, what is it, Matthew... 12, 13, no, 17, no, 17. Matthew 17, I think it is, uh, the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, whenever Peter, James, and John go with him up on the mountain, and it says that Jesus was transformed before their eyes, and Moses and Elijah came and talked with him. Moses eventually got into the land, uh, just wasn't in this life. So that's important to see. So it says here, uh, let's see, um, <laughs> verse 38 of chapter 1. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter there. Remember, Caleb, Joshua, the two spies that were faithful, the two that make it in. Encourage him, for he will cause Israel to inherit it. Intentional language. Number one, the inherit language goes with the possess the land language. Number two, encourage him. Joshua needs to be encouraged. Joshua has been Moses' right-hand man for quite a time. Okay, now I want you to do this real quick. Turn over to the book of Joshua chapter 1. I want you to see something that's interesting in this pattern. Joshua chapter 1, just right after Deuteronomy. And here's what I think is interesting. Even though he doesn't inherit the land, notice how Moses is described in chapter 1 verse 1. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, even though he's disobedient, Moses is still described as the servant of the Lord. Very interesting. Notice it doesn't, you know, that worthless guy who struck the rock when I said speak it, he doesn't say that at all. Verse 2, Moses, my servant is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Pause for a second. The children of Israel are marching around in the wilderness of the first generation because they did not trust the Lord and go into the land the first time when they said, 
go, right? When, when the Lord said go, they said no. So they're marching around. Why are they marching around for that 38, 40 years? Unbelief, yes, but what? They had to die. Everybody that was 20 and older had to bite the bullet before they could go in. Look here at verse 2. Moses, my servant, is dead, right? Now, therefore, arise, cross this Jordan. Who was the last person they were waiting to die before they could go over? It was Moses. Isn't that interesting? Because Moses was not allowed to inherit the land. The last person they were waiting on to eat the dust was Moses. Once Moses died, they got to go over. Now, let's mess it up even further. Are you ready? Skip back to the last chapter of Deuteronomy. Chapter 34. Look at verse 1. Now Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, and all Naphtali, and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, and all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, and the Negev, and the plain, in the valley of Jericho, and the city of the palm trees, as far as Zor. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have led it. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him. Who buried Moses? God buried Moses. But it gets even weirder than that. In the valley of the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no man knows his burial place to this day. Although Moses was 120 years old when he died, his eye was not dim, nor his vigor abated. What's that mean? God was done with him. And when God's done with you, he takes your life. In fact, the only way that your life can be taken before God's time of taking it is by willful sin and rebellion and disobedience, and you're handed over to Satan to be taken out. Sin leads to death. Abraham could have, or I'm sorry, Moses could have kept going. But this was the end of the line of, for him because of one reason and one reason only. Unbelief. Amazing, isn't it? A little jarring to think about. Yes, sir? Yes. Yes. Here's the amazing thing about God. We mess up, he disciplines us. We have to suffer the consequences of our sin and our disobedience. But you know what's amazing? A loving father like we've never known, he lets it go. He doesn't hold it over our head. He doesn't beat us with it relentlessly. He doesn't paddle us till we're red and blistered. We did wrong, he disciplines us. We have to deal with the consequences, he lets it go. The relationship is restored. It's amazing. And of all the people that we would revere, who are the great people of the Old Testament? There's probably about five that we would name off 
you know, in, in two seconds would come to our minds. Abraham, uh, Adam, David, Moses, Isaiah. We'd probably name those off real quickly. One of the people that we've seen here didn't finish well. He didn't finish well. When it came time to communicate something important to the people, and, and like we saw in the event in Numbers 20, the holiness of God is what they were communicating. Failed. Interesting. Go back to Joshua 1. I want you to see about the encouraging of Joshua. Look at verse 3. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads I have given to you, just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, as far as the great sea towards the setting of the sun will be your territory. Now, this goes perfectly with what we just saw at the end of chapter 15 in Genesis, doesn't it? From the Nile River all the way over to the Euphrates and the part of the Hittites. Mitch, do we happen to have the map? Do you have the map readily available? If you wouldn't mind, man, bring it up. Thank you. I'm sorry. I should have said something to you. Bad communication. You just witnessed it right here. Um, notice it says after that, what's that? No communication. Thank you, Mitch. The Lord bless you and keep you. Uh, let's see here. As far as the great sea towards the setting of the sun will be your territory. Verse 5, no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land, which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Everybody see the repetition? Be careful to do according to all the land which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Does everybody see this whole idea of needing to encourage Joshua? Everybody see this? And the idea of God giving him his promise. Just as I spoke to Moses, I'm going to speak to you. What Moses wrote down, you need to do it as well. If you want to prosper and be successful, follow what I told Moses to do. Keep my word. That is the key. So the idea up here, we got it yet? Okay, sorry. Sorry. Everybody turn back to Deuteronomy 1. I just want to show you guys something real quick. I'm sorry, man. I should have said something to you. I apologize. Back to Deuteronomy 1. Look at verse 39. Moreover, now remember this complaining instance. Moreover, your little ones who said, who you said would become a prey, and your sons, who this day have no knowledge of good or evil, shall enter there, and I will give it to them, and they shall possess it. Okay, stop. We've got a lot of problems in this verse. A lot of problems with the way that we think about things. Okay? Go back and let's look at it. Remember the excuse? Our children will be killed. That's the problem. That's the reason why we're not going to go over God. If there's ever a reason to be disobedient, it's because my kids take priority. Is God happy with that? No. Who takes care of our kids? God does. Man, I know we don't believe that somehow. He does. I know sometimes I don't believe that. I know I struggle with that belief. I struggle with the belief that God has better things in mind for my child than what I have. I would like to think that I've got it all going on. I know, well, I'm doing this for his own good, right? Those kind of things. 
over and above that, I'm just stewarding what God's given me. I'm just stewarding a child, a human life that he's put in my possession. Here we go. Uh, The other one, please, if you don't mind. There we go. So this whole stretch, when he talks about to the great river Euphrates here, when it talks about the realm of the Hittites, see up there in the top where it says Nineveh? Then you go down to the to the go down south and then to the right a little bit. Newsy, see it there? That whole realm right there is known as the realm of the Hittites. So notice that he is reaffirming the Genesis 15 promise. It's all of that land. It's stretching from the Nile all the way over to the Euphrates. I'm giving you all of this land to possess. It is yours for the taking. You can inherit it. No problem. Now pause. Do we know how this story ended? Did they inherit all the land? They might know why they didn't inherit all the land. Unbelief. I promise you, a lot of things I'm going to ask, 75% of the answer is unbelief. It really is. God told them, go in, do this, do this, do this. Don't make a pact with anybody. Kill everything that moves, which is hard for us to deal with sometimes. Kill everything that moves. It's done. And now take possession of it. Don't leave anything behind. Don't make any agreements with people at all. Why? Well, because then your people will marry with their people and their people will influence your people. And next thing you know, you'll stop being my people. God had very serious motives behind that. I know that was a lot of trouble, but that's what I wanted to show, so I appreciate it. Yes? I I believe that it will happen right before that. No, I believe it'll happen at the coming of Christ. I believe when Jesus comes, when Jesus rips through the clouds and it says a sword from his mouth will slay all opposition, I believe that he will speak truth and people's heads will just start popping off. That's what I believe. I believe that people will just start start dying from his words, which is incredible. Uh, I don't know if I believe it's a literal sword that's coming out of his mouth, kind of like some crazy tongue or something like that. We think like some dragon or something. I don't think that's a situation. I think what it's going to be is he's going to speak and because truth is coming from truth. We have to remember, truth is not a thing, it's a person. Jesus Christ is the truth. I think when the truth speaks the truth, people can't handle it. And I think they die. I think that's what happens. And so we deal with this whole idea with the with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, all that going on, and Muslims are all surrounding them and everything like that. You have all this opposition that is crowded in the Valley of Megiddo in order to destroy them. And by the way, your pictures from the Valley of Megiddo, incredible, beautiful. They let me borrow a book of when they went to Israel in 2013. It, it's amazing to see some of that. In fact, I'd like to try to take pictures of it and throw it up on the screen at some point. Maybe we can take a look at some of that stuff. Very helpful, awesome stuff. Uh, but in doing so... They will all die at that moment. How do you have a people possess a land that they were supposed to possess a long, long time ago, but because of their own disobedience, they kept having it taken away from them. They kept forfeiting it every time that they started to gain some traction. People started not believing the Lord. If you read through First and Second Kings, you see what a problem that is. Some people devoted to the Lord. Some people weren't devoted to the Lord. And it all messed up their, their situation with the land. Well, in this situation, Jesus is going to come in and finally do what we could not do for ourselves or Israel could not do for themselves. And he's going to give them the full stake of the land. And why is that? Because when he comes back, he establishes himself as the sovereign over all things. He will sit on David's throne and he will rule and reign. So that's when that will come back and when he will come back and take control of all of that. 
Uh, that is the hope of, of the nations where he'll be ruling from. Uh, so notice this, verse 39, Moreover, your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your sons. Now, this is, this is something that we have a lot of problems with reading this thing here. Who this day have no knowledge of good or evil. What in the world does that mean? I mean, if they were 19 years old, did they not know good from bad? Is that what it was? How should we understand that? Did they not know God? Well, from what we know, whose responsibility was it that they know about God? Parents' responsibility. The parents are the disciples of the home. They're the ones who set the tone for the culture. Regardless of what anybody else wants to tell you, it's the parents who set the tone. But what does this mean? Your little ones, 20 years old, I mean, if they're under that, they don't know good or evil. They have no moral compass? What do you think? Well, they hadn't been born in the wilderness yet because remember, Moses is referring back to the people who had just come out of the Exodus account. So they've been born in captivity in Egypt. They've come out, but he's saying everybody that's 20 and over wander around until they die. Then you can cross over. But he's saying here, your children have no understanding of good or evil. They weren't being taught, maybe. Too busy grumbling? Well, let's be honest. Who was probably grumbling instead of those 19 years and under? It's probably mom and dad. So notice they're not being held responsible for their actions. They are not yet fully recognized as adults in society yet. Or let's take it this way. It is the responsibility of the older generation to set the tone for abiding in truth for the younger generation. So notice, everybody 20 and over is becoming an object lesson for everybody 19 and younger. You see this? Notice that God is going to great lengths in order to teach people even when it hurts. So it says here, they shall enter there and I will give it to them and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn around and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. Now let's stop there for just a second. God tells them because of your rebellion, your kids will inherit it, you're going to die in the wilderness, turn around and leave this border and go away. Now we've looked at this before, but I want to show you why this connection, that this is a type of an antitype in the scripture. Take your Bible and turn with me to Hebrews 3 and we'll finish up with this right here. Hebrews chapter 3. If you're ever looking for an excellent commentary on the Old Testament, Hebrews works, especially chapter 11. We're going to look in verse 3. <clears throat> and Hebrews is such a beautiful book, it really needs to be started at the beginning. But I won't keep you to do that because we would be here until the James. In fact, we could start Hebrews and we'd run right into James probably about 530. <laughs> Just keep going, right? Work out. But start in chapter 3, verse 1. We'll get a little bit of a running start. I'm just going to ask you a couple of questions and hopefully it'll help shore up what's going on. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, saved or unsaved, the writer of Hebrews believes that his audience is redeemed people. Very important to understand. Partakers of a heavenly calling. Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now stop. Brief little background on Hebrews. 
The book of Hebrews is written with two main thrusts in mind. It is written to authentically saved Jewish people. So they're Jewish Christians. And because of all the persecution that they've been suffering, and persecution wasn't just somebody was getting beat with a stick or something like that all the time. Sometimes it was that they were being blacklisted by labor unions and things like that. That they were mandated as part of their work scenario to be participating in uh, cultic prostitute worship at the local temple or they wouldn't be accepted, they couldn't get paid, they couldn't feed their family. And so there's a lot of problems here. And so the idea here is twofold. It is promoting the idea of how great Jesus is in relation to all of these things that they know of Old Testament Judaism so they don't fall back on these things. Why? Because they were considering walking away from their Christianity and falling back into Judaism because it was much more safer and much more accepted in the Roman people and they wouldn't be getting the snot beat out of them every other day. Imagine the freshmen going to high school, right? That kind of idea. But the other thing is, is that the author of Hebrews wants to communicate to them the great riches that will be heaped upon them for their faithfulness in staying the course and remaining true to Christ. Very important. So it's a twofold thing there. Everybody got that? Okay, so with that an idea, notice that's why he's saying, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, but just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. In other words, if you saw a beautiful house, we could sit here and we could go gaga all day over the house, but what you really want to do is you want to shake the hands of the guy who was the architect or redesigned the, the, the interior decorator, whoever it was. Those are the people who were the masterminds behind making it be an object that your eyes would adore is the idea. Jesus is greater. So notice verse 5, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. A testimony of those things that was to be spoken later. Setting up a type so that we would understand the antitype, right? But it says here, but Christ was faithful as a son. Notice the contrast. Moses was a servant. Christ is a son, and he is over the house, whose house we are, hold it, pause, everybody see the next word? What is it? If, uh uh-oh, stop for a second, there's a contingency that is brought to the forefront. We are his house if, if, if what? If we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Does that mean you're not really saved unless you die of believing Christian? No, that's not what it's saying. That's not anywhere in the realm of what it's talking about. It is talking about this privileged position and being in close close proximity with the Son if we remain faithful. That's the problem. They weren't in danger of losing their salvation at this time in Hebrews. They were in danger of losing their inheritance. And that's why the author of Hebrews pulls from this historical event in Deuteronomy and shows them, plugs it in for them to understand, to get them a mental picture. Remember, Jewish Christians, they're going to have that background. Here's a mental picture from a historic event that helps you understand the spiritual reality. He says here, verse, 30, verse 7, forgive me. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, 
as in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now stop for a second. Didn't the wilderness generation have all these evidences? I mean, you could have taken them to court and they were saying, you're guilty just by the sheer fact of your being there. Your knowledge of this situation, everything that you saw God do. But what's the problem here? Despite what God had done, they didn't want believe. Isn't that amazing? These people could see it with their eyes. They could retell other people what happened. You'll never believe it, kind of funny, but here's what God did. And later on, when times got tough and hard, belief in God to provide the solution to their situation was the first thing, jettison out the window, gone. Now notice what he's saying to these people. Just as they hardened their hearts, just as they denied the evidence that was placed before him. I mean, think about some of the things it says here. Verse 8, do not harden your hearts, provoking God. Notice, they tested God. Verse 9, they saw his works for 40 years. He was angry with them, but they went astray in their hearts. Verse 10, they did not know his ways. They could tell you what he did, but get it. They did not know his ways. They were not intimate with the creator of all things in their understanding of him. And that's what he's communicating to these people who are thinking about rejecting the faith and going back to a much safer situation in religion. It says, verse 12, take care, who? Brethren, saved people, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. This word unbelieving here is very interesting because it takes the Greek word pistis and it adds an alpha at the beginning, or what we would say an A, in order to negate it, okay? And the idea is here, you just don't believe. Notice what he's saying. He's warning them. Christians, take care. Because you could be found in the midst of your persecuted situation to have an evil, unbelieving heart. Did you know that Christians can be unbelieving? It's totally possible. And notice that he is warning them against that. Be careful. Let that not be found in you. Does that mean they're not saved? No. It means in their current situation, they've allowed everything to overcome them in such a way as to where they're no longer holding fast to the truth. And so it says here that you would fall away from the living God. Verse 13, how do you counteract that? Here's how you do it, church. Watch. But encourage one another day after day as long as it's called today. Or if I would have wrote this, I would have said, Encourage one another in every day that ends in Y. Like Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, right? And all the other four of them as well. Every day that ends in Y. How do you keep your brothers and sisters from having an evil and unbelieving heart because they get so bitter with everything that's going on in this world? Here's how you do it. You constantly serve as an encouragement to one another. You're constantly seeking to encourage one another every day. If the day ends in why, that's the day. If you can call today, today, guess what? You need to encourage somebody. You need to encourage somebody. He says here, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
For we have become partakers of Christ, his metakoi, his sharers in Christ. If, there's the contingency, we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. That's the idea. Now, let me give you a little bit of encouragement before we pray and and get this. How do you battle unbelief? Turn with me to 2 Timothy, uh, to the left a little bit. How do you battle this unbelief that could come up from the deceitfulness of sin, from the things in our lives that want to crowd us down, that the wilderness generation is used as an example to show us, don't be like these people. Strive, stay tenderhearted, keep moving forward, stay the course, persevere to the end, don't give up. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Look at verse 11. It is a trustworthy statement. For, here's the explanation. If we died with him, we will also live with him. When we believe in Jesus, we die. And when we die with him, he's promised we will live with him. He will raise us up in the last day. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. Verse 12. If we endure, we will also what? Reign with him. Our reigning with him, or we would also say to keep the language consistent, inheriting the promises, the blessing is the idea. If we want to do that, we must endure. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Now, immediately everybody says, ah, see, you get in front of somebody and you have the opportunity to stand up for your faith and you don't go out to the flagpole at the National Day of Prayer. See, you're not really saved. Is that the way it is? No. It's the idea that in the midst of a situation... If you have a, if as a Christian, if you deny him, and you can look at John chapter 12, verses 43, 44, 42 in there, there were soldiers who were part of the Roman guard who believed in Jesus, but for fear of the government, they did not want to reveal it publicly. Still saved, but living a lifestyle of denial. But guess what? If we deny him on earth, he'll deny us before his father in heaven. We won't get to reign and endure. We won't. That's not a privilege we'll experience. But notice it says here, verse 13, if we are, what's that? faithless. It is derived from the exact same word that we saw, an evil, unbelieving heart. It's interesting that this word here is translated faithless, because what should it say? According to the Greek translation, if we are unbelieving, if we are unbelieving in our life at some point, if life has gotten so hard that we have fallen away from the faith and we're not walking with the Lord, look what it says. If we are faithless, he remains what? faithful for he cannot deny himself because salvation isn't about you and me it's about a holy god that has a righteous standard that is angry with the existence of sin because it separates us from him and so the question is who is going to take care of that sin problem not us see that's why our works can't be involved in taking care of the sin problem We can't do anything good enough, and anything that we try to put forward is broken before it gets there. So notice, he puts forth Jesus to take care of the sin problem. Jesus takes care of the sin problem completely. So even that if you and I are struggling with a bout of unbelief, he cannot deny himself. He has to remain faithful. Why? Because the issue is God's anger and wrath towards sin, and Christ put forward to take care of it and be the propitiation, the satisfaction sin's penalty against God's wrath. He satisfies it. That's how you and I stay free and clear, even in our struggles, even in our disbelief, 
Even in our God, why are you doing this to me? Or even in your God, I seem to have lost my way. How come our relationship doesn't seem solid? Even when we're in the midst of blatant, rebellious sin, we feel like we're out in the middle of an ocean, just waiting to drown. God remains faithful. Why? Because he saved you based on nothing in you. He does it all unconditionally. We're, we're a lot like Abram. We just stand here and our job is just to receive the blessings of it. That's it. It's amazing. It's amazing how gracious God is with me. Because I tell you, after wiping snotty nose, after changing junky diaper, after having to spank him for disobedience and put him in timeout and hear him go, peace, 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 because he wants out of timeout. And I sit there and I look at him. I know some of you moms just look condemningly on me, okay? Shame on you. Shame on you. Discipline your child. But, but forgiveness, yes, but serving out the consequences of his actions. I don't hold it against him afterwards. Uh, but sometimes after a while, you just want to, Take your face and rub it against the carpet. I mean, I don't know how else to describe it. You just want to put your nose in the door and just slam it and be like, what is wrong with life? Good grief, man. You can only, and then you can only imagine what my wife's dealing with right now. God, come on, right? I love it because even in the periods when I'm not faithful to him, he is faithful. He cannot deny himself. My whole relationship with him is based on somebody else extending the hand, not me. That's beautiful. We have a beautiful God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for a solid lesson from this wilderness situation of unbelief. And Father, how you communicate through your word in the New Testament, stay faithful. Stay the course. Stay believing. God's already set it all up for you, for you to be successful. For I can, I can be successful because of Christ in my walk. Father, help us with our unbelief. Please, Father, convince us every moment, every day, your word is true. Thank you, God. It's in Jesus' name, amen.